Hello everyone and welcome back to CLP. Yes, well we do conscious parenting, partnering, personing and everything in between. And today's guest, I honestly feel so honoured that he's on today. Honestly, I actually got him on. I was like, are you sure he's confirmed? Because I read his book a long time ago now and it really did change my life. Um, so welcome to you to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. But for those who don't know who you are, can you give a little nutshell who you are and a little bit of background about what you do? Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be on the podcast, and I think it, it's a wonderful work that you're both doing. So it's it's great to be here for this chat. Um, well, right now, I'm. I mean, I could talk about the Resilience Project, but I feel like with the morning I've just had to just even get here today, uh, I would describe <laughs> myself first of all as a dad. That's kind of the. I'm a dad. That's my primary role at the moment with three kids under the age of six. Um, oh my goodness me! I never realised. Like I never quite realized. Everyone always said, "Oh, it's it's really hard." I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I, I, I've heard that many times. I'm, I I know it's going to be hard." I never understood how hard it really is. Like just to get out the door today feels like yeah, I, I, I I never once I never once properly appreciated before kids the notion of going. I'm going to get to work. I'm going to have a shower, have breakfast, put my clothes on. Not in that order. <laughs> Um, and I don't have new breakfast um, and I'm just going to go to work and I walk out the door and close the door behind me. Like that was just a gift that I didn't realize how amazing it was. And I had it for like 35 years of my life. And now I changed three nappies, made three breakfasts um, and I dealt with three tantrums and no one to put their shoes on, couldn't find shoes and then couldn't find socks. So bare feet, bad luck, then a tantrum and then just to get out the door today. <laughs> anyway, this is that's well, not the question you asked me. How hard is it? <laughs> congratulations of being here. We are parents, obviously, as well, so totally feel you on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I'm I about twelve years ago I founded the Resilience Project, and it's a if I could say it in a nutshell, it's a long story, but if I could do it quickly for you, I my personal story growing up as a very happy kid, but then my sister was diagnosed with a mental illness. And it completely ravaged her, completely ravaged our family. Um, and I saw the impact it had on mum and dad. And at a young age, I became very, I became fascinated with the question, what is it that makes people happy? I knew I couldn't help my sister. I knew that was well beyond my um, capabilities. My sister was in hospital with an eating disorder. But I did want to do things to help mum and dad to feel happier. Having, I didn't know, I, I had no idea what that was, but that's kind of what I wanted to to do and I wanted to help my little brother to feel happy again and I became fascinated and I went into teaching for that very reason thinking working in education you can help young people but I, again when I became a teacher I knew how to teach them literacy and numeracy but there was no part at university where they sat us down and said and here's how you teach positive mental health strategies and it wasn't until I was 28 years old that I lived in India I volunteered in a as you guys would know but as, as I volunteered I volunteered in a in a very poor and very underprivileged community and, and, and saw joy like I'd never seen before in my entire life. And, and I became fascinated then with, oh, I reckon these people have, I reckon they're onto something here. Um, and so I ended up, it was meant to be a two-week visit. I ended up staying for three and a half months. And, and in that time, um, I saw things that these people did and I came back to Australia and I, I went back to uni and looked at the research behind the things those people did and found out that they're evidence-based, the science to say these things do make us happier. And I very naively and very stupidly really quit my teaching job and decided to set up a thing 
that didn't have a name for a year. I just didn't know what to call it. So, but it became the Resilience Project, and and now we're very fortunate to be in a position where we we um, work with. Gosh, what is it? It's um, it's about five hundred thousand kids every day in Australia in schools around the country, and we teach them positive mm. mental health strategies. And yeah, it's 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 been a whirlwind journey, very difficult at times. But that's um, that's a very long answer to who am I and what do I do. <laughs> absolutely incredible and you are making such a big difference in these kids lives but even like in my life um you know your book was so amazing and it was india that you went to right yes oh all the little stories you told of that trip just really really touched me and made a big impact on my life and overall like gratitude i mean i was saying to levi before we jumped on this call that you know you are the reason why i continue to do my gratitude journaling every single night and um yeah, I, I leave. I've been trying to bang it into my head for years before this to do gratitude journaling. This this story, Hugh, this is a is a big ego hit to me because I, I I've been getting a like I've I've created an app that teaches people gratitude. It she's had it. Well, like, we've been talking about this for ages, and she goes to me last week. Oh, yeah, this guy's the guy that taught me about doing gratitude every day. I'm like. I felt like I smashed my head through the wall. I'm like, are you fucking kidding? <laughs> I want to meet this guy so I can I pummel know, him. But... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It's just, it's the storytelling in your book. It's, you know, those little kids in India that had a broken playground and they were like, Hugh, come look at this. Like, and it's, it's just so beautiful the way you explained it all. Like it, there was so many takes away from your book that just, I feel like I'm so life-changing. So, you know, thank you for your work. Oh, um, no, please don't mention it, but, but I'd love to hear what the app is as well, Levi. What, what's the app? That's That sounds awesome. <laughs> uh, we can talk about it another. It's called Mind Body HQ, but I'll talk about it elsewhere. Let's get on to some questions. Um, <laughs> uh, actually, I've got an example of non-gratitude in kids that happened yesterday that uh, <laughs> maybe you can help help us out with or see where I'm uh, going wrong as a parent. My, um, my daughter got a present or she got a present from her grandma for soon to becoming a big sister and she opened it up and straight away she goes, I don't want, I didn't ask for this. And she started crying and she's like, I don't want it. <laughs> and like her grandma's on the phone, like watching. And, and she, and I said, you know, like, thank you very much grandma. She goes, but I don't like it. I'm going to throw it in the bin. <laughs> oh, no. And I'm like, wow, this is the exact opposite of what we're going to be talking about tomorrow. And, um, I didn't realize that I created such a, a non-grateful little shit. <laughs> she's four, by the way, but still. <laughs> she's four. She's four. Okay, yeah, that's hilarious. My gosh. Well, that's very much, that's very consistent with the experience of my household as well. It's, um, well, it, with my son it is, not so much my daughter. My daughter's the opposite. It's it's um, it's funny. They've been brought up under the same roof, but so very different with those kind of things. Like if my son doesn't like a present that he opens, he'll let us know if he's disappointed. Um, whereas my daughter will just say, wow, I'm so excited no matter what it is. We could get her anything. And she would say, oh, so exciting. She goes, I love this no matter what it is. And whereas here's the opposite. So um, like when I put Elsie, my daughter, to bed, she's, this is, I'm not making this up. She's, and she's two and her brother's five, but she'll say, she'll lie down. She'll go, I'm so excited for tomorrow. I'll wake up. We'll play some games. I'll have some porridge. Uh, and then we can play more games and I have some water. I'm so excited. And like, oh, I go, oh gosh, that's that's good for me to hear because uh, I, was like, I feel like a fraud when my son would open a present and go, I don't want this. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I'm a fraud all these years. 
<laughs> All these, I've been found out. What's going on? Yeah. So a lot of it, it, it sort of shows a lot of it's just we're just we're just wired a little bit differently, all of us. But but Levi, what I would say is that she's going to be fine because the most powerful way to model, sorry, the most powerful way to influence anyone's behaviour is to model the behaviours. And so in the next few years of her life, when she sees you opening a present and saying, I'm so grateful I got this, thank you. And you, that, that'll rub off on her and she'll start to learn. Some kids just have it innately, like my daughter, and other kids don't, like your daughter and my son. That's just, they don't quite have it yet. But it, it you know, they're young. Gosh, they're four years old. And I think the world would actually be a better place if a lot of us were just much better at saying what we thought all the time. <laughs> Yeah, there's some pros to that response, isn't there? Absolutely. Absolutely there is. I totally agree. Honesty. They have no filters, do they? <laughs> no. It's um I was putting Elsie to bed the other night and I said, um uh, uh what did she say? Oh, that's right. She was we spent a lot of time working out what she was gonna wear for her pajamas. I said, Gosh, you're a fuzzy woman, aren't you? And she said, and she looked really confused. She hadn't heard woman before, and she said, I'm not a woman, I'm a woman girl. No, she goes, I'm not a womb man, I'm a womb girl. And I went, okay, 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 womb girl. <laughs> so cute. Let's talk about building resilience in our, in our kids. What was that, sorry? I'd love to chat more on how we can start to build our kids up with resilience. Like what, what are some tips from the man himself on how to build more resilience in our kids through school, through just growing up, through all the challenges? I mean, the answer, I'd, the answer I'm going to give you now is very different to what I would have said five years ago before I had kids myself. So, And the reason it's different is because now having kids, three kids are all very different. Um, I want to preface this by saying this is a generalization and this is a, a general comment and it doesn't apply. Every kid's child, do, every child's different. So every child needs a different approach. But um, what I used to say, and I'll still say it, but I'm prefacing it with every child's different. So it won't work for everyone. But as a general rule, I think as parents, we are doing way too much for our kids these days. Um, I feel like we're wrapping them in cotton. Well, we're kind of, we're kind of just like wrapping them in, in cotton wool and we're just kind of trying to fight. It's gone one step further as we're kind of fighting battles for our kids. We're kind of doing everything for them. And it comes from such a loving and caring place. And I understand why parents are more likely to do it these days perceived or otherwise there's just a lot more threats in the world these days I felt than there was you know 20 25 years ago even I think about my childhood to what we're doing now I mean we literally have to keep our kids in our homes to keep them safe the last two or three years so we're in this habit of like I got to protect them from everything the world's a dangerous place and it is but we don't want to do it to the extent where they're missing out on failure like kids have got to fail they've got to stuff up like whether it's physical or emotional, they've got to stuff up because that is how they learn. You know, they, they learn through making mistakes and they, they've got to experience setbacks because that's a big part of life. They've got to learn that they're not perfect pretty quickly and that it's okay. Um, what's a better example? I just feel like, and we're doing so much for our kids. I, I drove past local school, actually on the way to get here, and I was at the lights at the, um, at the crossing for the school. And I... More than half the parents were carrying their bags for their kids. And it sounds like such a small thing, but I do think anything that your kids can do themselves, just let them do it themselves. Um, yeah. But I, I'm, I'm very, my, my son, my eldest son is going through some stuff at the moment and we're getting, doing assessments and stuff. And so I do want to say all this comes from a place of, but when, when I say we're fighting too many battles for our kids, 
if your child is neurotypical, that applies to you. If, you're, if your child is neurodivergent, if your child is, it could be a whole range of things. You know, maybe they're highly anxious. Maybe they're, the anxiety rates are through the roof at the moment for kids. So maybe they're on the spectrum. Maybe they have ADHD. Maybe there's a disability there. Um, for, for, for those parents, I think find find the right balance. I think a lot of your life is about fighting battles for your kids so, so they can just get out the door, so they can have a good experience at school. But I used to be very black and white. I used to go, no, stop fighting battles for your kids. Let them flower, let them fail, let them hurt themselves, all that kind of stuff. But I, I understand, I have a much greater understanding of, of, of um, the differences that sit within different kids. And, and I do think we've got to get... That, that comment comes from a place of if, if your child is robust enough to fall over and hurt themselves and get back up and get on with their day, you know, maybe they'll go to the sick bay and they'll they'll be upset, but but it won't set them back too far, you know. Let them fail, let them stuff up. But if your child, for example, is on the spectrum, then I don't need to tell you this, but your life is about fighting battles for them and I have so much love and admiration and respect for you for, for what you do every single day to get your child through the day because the world is a very, very uncertain and scary place for them and and they need that sort of guidance so but as a very general we got to be okay with our kids stuffing up and failing and and making mistakes and and you know even stuff like the things we try and protect them from like you know i i i won't give examples from my life because i, I don't have permission from my family to do this but if your child is struggling to fit in you know at kinder or at school and they're, they're not sure which group they fit in that is a normal thing to go through as a child and we got to resist the, the urge to pick up the phone to the school and say, my child doesn't have a friendship group here. What, could, could you encourage them to go and speak to these kids or could you encourage these kids to play with them? Yeah, that, that'll get the desired outcome and we'll find a place for them to fit in. But I, it's almost like an important thing to go through to work out that, you know, you still do it as adults. You still, you go to a new workplace and you go, where do I fit in here? And you might hang out with the people for a while and go, do you know what? I don't reckon these people are the best people for me right now. And you've got to, because you went through this at school, you know how to navigate that. And School is a good place to fail and to stuff up. It's a safe, sheltered environment where we've got to learn this stuff. So, again, long answer. No, I love that. And I totally agree with everything you've said. Even as a parent myself, I catch myself doing things for my seven-year-old or, um, you know, preventing him from fall or don't want him to try something in case he falls. You know, it is from a loving place because I don't want him to be in pain or feel like a failure, but I'm very aware of everything you just said and been trying to be more conscious to let him slip up, to let him make mistakes to let him feel all the emotions of what it feels like when, you know, shit doesn't go to plan or things break or whatever. But it is always from a loving place that you're just trying to protect them. Yeah, and I've got to say, this is also coming from a guy who on the weekend, uh, I was down in, um, I, went for mount, I went mountain biking for three days and I've never done that. I've never been mountain biking before, but me and there were four of us on the trip. Two of them are very good. And me and the other guy were not as good. Actually, that's not fair to the other guy. He was actually really good. I was the one who was really bad. But the guy running, but the guy taking the mountain biking trip said to me and the other guy, why don't we go, they're called a pump track where you can actually practice your technique. It's like a little BMX track, I guess. And we were there and we were learning this stuff and there were a group of kids there and I'm not making this up. One of them was three years old. He was cycling in thongs um, and he was just going, I was like, I wear all this protective gear on. He had thongs on and he was just going up and down the track, flying around this track. And I was thinking, oh my gosh. And I was like, where are the parents? And there was a dad watching, holding his baby in one arm. He had a beer in the other arm. And he was just watching. And I was thinking, <laughs> oh, my God, what is? where are we? Anyway, the kid has this massive stack, like huge. He's, he's upside down 
like hanging off one of the jumps. His, his legs are everywhere. His helmet's like sitting side on his face. He's screaming. And instinctively, me and the other guy, my mate Al, who's also a dad, we just dropped our bikes and ran over. We, we sprinted over and we're going, are you okay, mate? You okay? You, you're so... I was like, where's this kid's dad at? And I turned around. His dad's just watching from 50 metres away with a beer in his hand, baby in the hand, just like... And then he started to feel guilty that we were helping his son and he wasn't. So he comes over really slowly and he goes, you'll be right, mate. Up you get. His kid's screaming. He goes, you'll be right. Get up. And I was thinking, mate, like, what's, like give him a bit of love. Like, but I was on the plane. There's a bit of balance there. I was flying back to Melbourne. I was thinking, shit, like, that's what I talk about every day. Like, this kid, he was okay. Like, he lost a bit of skin and a bit of blood on his knee. Nothing was broken. Um, and literally a minute later, this kid was cycling again. I tell you right now, if that was my kids, that's the day over. Like, we're, we're out of there. So, <laughs> crying all the way home. And I'm going, oh, my God, I'm yep. sorry I shouldn't have done that. So, I feel I, you. That's my son. <laughs> yeah. So I say that coming from this is the guy who, who watched mm. a guy drinking a beer do it much better than me, who quite literally didn't say, hold my beer, because he didn't need to. He was still drinking it. <laughs> there's, a whole, there's a balance between it, isn't it, I feel? Totally. 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 Yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. Well, thank you for that. I love everything you've said there. With the parents thing and uh, like with your example on the the friends in the the daycare or whatever and and how much of it do you work on in the resilience project where I know it's working with the the kids but you know that that reaction from the parent is you know like if the parent reacts and goes well I'm I'm happy with them to have no you know like they're they're fine and the the kids feed off that like how much of it is connected in regards to that um from from an anxious child or etc it's such a great point i we will often i mean we do parents every every school we work with or every kindergarten or elc we work with there is a there's a big component of is training the parents because they're more than half the battle i i feel like if we can teach these kids this stuff but then if they go home and then yeah, the parents are overindulging them or they are spoiling them or they are not allowing them to fail and make mistakes, then it's kind of, I don't know, I don't have much of an impact. So we do talk to parents a lot about this. And, um, you know, I, I, I kind of feel like just what I said before, I mean, I'm the perfect example of it. I talk about it every day, but I still find it very difficult. So, um, and also the, the other thing to your point, Levi, which is a great point is that a lot of schools, a lot of our schools are saying to us, the kids have come back so different after COVID. Over COVID, they're anxious. They have very low tolerance for things. Like there's a lot more fights in the playground, a lot of yelling and screaming and crying. Well, we didn't used to get that. And I've said to them, well, I, I, I think a lot of that comes from what they're seeing at home. Like I, I think mm. they're, they're turning up at school and they're, and they're doing what their parents are doing. And that's not me having a crack at the parents because I was yelling and screaming and crying as much as anyone during COVID lockdowns. We did... We did 265 days in Melbourne of, of hard stage four lockdowns over two years. And it was it took me to places emotionally that I, I've never been before. And, and it, it gave me an appreciation for people experiencing anxiety and depression. And it was horrible. You know, we had back then we had during the during the absolute peak of it, we had two kids. One of them was eight months old and she she just didn't sleep. She never, ever, ever slept. Like, and it was just so we were going, my wife and I are trying to, you know, it's like you, there's your relationship that you're trying to protect on no sleep and you're locked in the house and you can't leave. And in Melbourne in the winter, it was like, I remember we had a week where I remember looking, it was a Monday morning and I got up and I was like, okay, 
it's a fresh week. We're gonna. I got up, you know, and I was like, this is. I got to get through this week. Cause I, and I looked at the weather on my phone, and it said every day said rain, like hundred percent chance of rain, and and the warmest day was eleven degrees. I was like, I, like, what is there to look forward to here? Like, and I have no doubt the behaviour that my kids saw. They watched was someone staring at their phone the whole time because it's the only way you could escape was to be on your phone. Or they saw it as they saw the dad staring at his phone, snapping really quickly, being really flat about everything. Yeah, you know, and I have no doubt that's that's what that's that's the mood they took on. So that's an extreme example, but I do to your point, Levo, which is a great one. It's a really, really important point that as we as parents, we got to model the behaviour that we want our kids to take on eventually. Yeah, look within first, right? Um, well, I, I've got a story or a example because I, I think it it's uh, pointed to to your point too. Then Hughes, I've got a real big, like for, almost a chip on my shoulder of like, I never wanted a bratty child, and I want a resilient child, and I want them. I don't want to have to do them for me, and and I've always had that. Like I've specifically got a trampoline with no sides on it, and my daughter's, you know, she's she's got all those traits, you know. But I had this realization two weekends ago, um, rather than saying cotton wool, right? It's just, we do what we want, what like we act over, overact on our triggers to protect our children. And I had this realization when I was going for a walk with her with a couple other little kids and she goes, my legs are tired. And I just picked her up and I just carried her the whole way. Cause I like, I get a big cuddle and whatever, but she's so not resilient in pushing through fatigue in any sort of like, she's just like, carry me. And I never make, I'm like, yeah, sure. Give me a cuddle. Um, but I've done all this work in this other area. And for me, I'm actually, the realization was like, I'm my fear is you grow up to be a bratty child, a weak, you know, like non-resilient. So my way of protecting you is making you like, she has to order any drinks when we go to a cafe. I'm making you do that because my fear is, you know, so it's, if we change the mentality of the parent to to go, well, it's more scary for you for me to come in and and you know jump in and make you have friends or have a talk to the teacher, but then that realization that shit, in so many other ways, I'm creating a non-resilient child because I need hugs. <laughs> I did. <laughs> no, it's a it's such a good point. I I mean, no parent is perfect, and. Yeah, I mean that—that's kind of what I've learned. We all, we, I think, the most important thing that we can do is just. Uh, there's a book actually. I think Dan Siegel wrote a book, and I think it's called "The Power of Showing Up." And he essentially says that the most important thing a parent can do, and and this is the other really nice thing I found from it. The research says you don't have to have two parents in a loving relationship to create a resilient child. It just needs you only need one parent to show up for them, so that when the kids need you or, or they or they or they need something they know you're there for them that's all they really need for, to, for so we 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 i do the same as you levi i i analyze and critique myself and i had the exact i like the exact same scenario the other day like my daughter said i'm tired i don't want to walk and i went cool no worries i'll carry you because i want to get home quicker <laughs> because i want because i wanted to watch the cricket that's that was my thing i was like well i want to cricket i don't want to miss the start so i'm picking i'm carrying you in my head i'm going well a better dad would just go, bad luck, mate, you're going to walk. And I don't care. I'll sit here and wait as long as you want me to. I don't care. But I want to watch the cricket. And so I made a selfish decision. A bit more selfish than yours. You wanted hugs. That, that's much nicer than what I did. It's a much nicer story than me wanting to watch the cricket. But 
Um, but I do, I, I do think we're all imperfect as parents, and we all have our, you know, a lot of parents wouldn't do what you do, which is say, no, you're ordering your own, you know, coffee. That's mm-hmm. or your own baby chino. You have to order it yourself. That's amazing. Like I think, I think that's like a when you look at um, when you take on an avatar, when you're playing for gamers out there, when you take on a different avatar. All their avatars got different strengths and weaknesses. We're exactly the same. And and the fact that you are getting her, she'll be a great communicator, you know, because because you're getting her to do that from such a young age. Um, so day by day, situation by situation, like depending on even where you're at emotionally, like some days I can't be bothered having a battle with my seven-year-old. Some days for my own mental health, if I'm feeling stretched and empty, it's like, fuck it. Okay, we're going to do that. But I had a really good example too that I remember telling you, Levi, about how my seven-year-old, he's quite sensitive. He doesn't handle yelling or um, like aggressive tone. And he was at this school and the teacher yelled a lot. And he was coming home really upset. And the mama bear and me wanted to call up and be like, I don't like, you know, Mrs. Smith doing this, blah, blah, blah. And I remember speaking to my coach at the time and he kind of said, you know, we can't fight our battles for our kids, but what's, what's another option? And um, I was like, well, maybe I go in with him and be there to support him, but encourage him to say what he was feeling. And I thought that was a really nice balance. I'm not going in and fighting his battles, but I'm not also going, you deal with it by yourself because he is more sensitive and I want him to feel supported and loved and that he knows I've got his back. So I went in there and we had a chat with the teacher and he was real shy, but he was like, you know, I don't like when you yell. And they had a nice conversation. I felt like that was a, a good balance of not just, yeah, leaving him on his own, but also not fighting the battle for him. So I think it's Situation by situation, right? I mean, that's gold standard parenting right there. Seriously, like that's a, what a fantastic, um, mm. not even compromise, just a good, great solution. Really good. Yeah. Thank you. And that's, it's all, it's all learning, isn't it? Like you said, every kid's so different. I bet you my daughter's going to be completely opposite to him. Everyone's just so different. And I always say this on all my talks on social media, every parent out there, we really are doing the best we can with the situation we're in, with the tools we have, the awareness we have, and, you know, how we're feeling each and every single day. So... Yeah, I feel like we're all killing it. <laughs> yeah, to- I totally agree. Totally agree. Let's move on to um, journaling, though. I'd love to chat more about journaling because, yeah, it definitely took me a long time to get into gratitude journaling, but journaling in general. Um, I'd love to hear your background as to when you started, how you started, and are you still journaling every day now? This could be a bit triggering for Levi, I think, this, if we talk about gratitude journaling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't want to learn uh, anything off you here. <laughs> um it's a really interesting one (coughs) sorry i've been just on that cough i've been sick now well i'm not really sick at the moment but i've had this cough now for 11 weeks like that's another thing with parenting you just pass your illnesses around the families go round and round and round and i cannot get rid of this bloody cough so rotation (laughs) yeah feel free to edit that out my gosh um so yeah journaling is an interesting one i mean we I don't do it all the time and I'm being very honest with that, but I can tell you now when I do do it, I always feel so much better for it, so much better. Um, and we, our journals that we've set up are, are based on the research that says if you can record every day things that went well for you, it doesn't have to be life-changing things, but I had a nice coffee, the traffic wasn't too bad today, I got a nice text message from my brother, those kind of things. The, the research says that's really, really good for you. There's recent, This is for people who don't journal every day. This is to give you... Um, not hope, hope's wrong word, but just to let you know that what you're doing is still working because there's some other research that comes out now to say that um, that's come out quite recently that says you can do it once a week and you can reflect on your week and go, here are the great things about my week that happened this week. Because some people, if they do gratitude stuff every day, it makes them feel 
if they struggle to think of something because they're doing it every single day, they start to feel the opposite. They go, I'm so ungrateful. I'm such an ungrateful. I can't even think of three things a day. But there's research saying if you sit down on a Sunday afternoon, for example, with a cup of tea or coffee or a wine or a beer, whatever you want to do, and you just start writing down just a list of all the good things that happened during the week, um, that's going to have a big impact for you as well. So it doesn't need to be a daily thing. It could also be a weekly thing, which I absolutely love. I just think it's terrific. Um, journaling, um, who said this to me? Ben Crow, the mindset coach, Ash Barty's mindset coach, said to me, he said there's a, not his saying, but he's, he's, he said to me, if you're in your head, you're dead. And I think journaling is a great way to get stuff out of your head because you can have this, it's funny, you can feel stressed and, and anxious and not really sit back and go, why do I feel, what am I feeling stressed and anxious about right here? You just kind of go along going, oh, I'm so stressed, I'm so anxious. And we grab our phone and just go on Instagram to make ourselves feel better, which never works. In fact, it only makes us feel even shitter. In the, uh, so I think the next time you're feeling stressed and anxious, you could actually write down a list about what's actually making me feel like this. Like, why am I feeling, you can just write stuff down, just free. It doesn't need to make sense to anyone else. It could be a little diagram. It could just be a circle with a diagram of you and picture to where you feel the anxiety in my shoulders, like in my neck, I'm feeling stressed. Why? Um, I've got this deadline coming up. Um, there's an issue in my relationship. Uh, I'm worried about this. what this person said about my Instagram or I'm still upset about the, the DM someone sent me or whatever it is. And you look at them all and you could do, so, you don't have to do this, but you could look at them all and go, well, out of all these things I've written down here, and I'm linking this to journaling because I think doing this in your head is quite hard. But if you look at them all and you go, which ones do I have control over here? I've got control over that meeting coming up. If I put a bit of work into that, I'm going to, I'm going to unwind a bit. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm stressed because I didn't get back to my sister's text message. I, I, I can control that. I'll get back to her and write her a proper message now. Um, I can't control what someone said about me on social media. So I cross through that. I, I let it go. I have, I've, I've got to let that go. Or I don't know, whatever it is, work out what you control, what you can't control. And if you can't control it, get the fuck out of your psychology because it's not, it's not, it's not serving you. But then for the things you can control, write about them, take action, write about what you might do to make yourself feel a bit better. So, so that's, this is all the stuff that this is all different examples of how you can journal. But um, I sent an extra girl on the plane the other day and she, it was a two and a half hour flight. In fact, it was the Gold Coast. It was the Gold Coast. And she, she honestly filled out three exercise pages and I didn't read it. So I didn't ask her what it was because I can tell it's very private, but <laughs> <laughs> would it be okay if I read your journal? But she just wrote, <laughs> it was just those free, she would look out the window for me, then she'd just write and look out for when it was right. Um, and unfortunately, there was Wi-Fi on the plane. I spent the whole bloody time on Instagram or on email or, and I can tell you right now, the person who got off the plane feeling a bit better about themselves was absolutely the girl next to me because she'd just been getting stuff out of her head where I'd been sticking more stuff in my head. I love too what you said in your book too, um, not in these words, but basically I think you were saying if you practice gratitude journaling, I find I find I feel the best when I'm doing it daily. It trains your brain to scan for the positives rather than like when something negative happens or something hard happens. You've trained your brain to like look for the silver lining and that for me, I really, really notice when I'm consistent with my journaling, I'm just a much more high vibe, positive person. Even when things don't go wrong, things go wrong, I'm way less stressed about it and I manage it way better. But if I'm not doing it, I can find myself just like falling back into the victim and just feeling a bit shittier about it or making it a bigger deal than what it is. So for me, that like training my brain and doing it consistently made the biggest of difference. I feel like it's almost similar to healthy eating. Like the more you do it, the better you feel. Oh, it's um, so true. 
And I love that you were talking about the different ways to journal because I get asked on social media all the time because I talk about journaling a lot. I have the gratitude journal and then I also have what I call my crisis journal. <laughs> and this is when I'm going through something really, really hard. And this is hidden in my room. I don't want anyone to find this journal. But this is where it's just like this massive brain dump, whatever my thoughts are feeling. And if whatever I'm feeling, the thoughts, and if I start to judge myself on them or, you know, they're just feeling too much, getting that out on paper Oh, it literally helps me sleep and takes the weight off my shoulders and it's on the paper, it's out of my body. It helps me just like move through it. And sometimes as you're writing, like I'll just start with, I feel, I feel angry, I feel this, I feel that. You just get out what you're feeling and then you start to like uncover some other things and you don't know what's going to come up, but it's such an awesome healing process that you can do by yourself at any time of the day, you know? So there's so many different ways you can journal, but they're the two main main ones that I do that I've found really, really helpful. I love that. It's it is such a fantastic example. That that it's like you got both ends covered, the gratitude and the crisis part. But um just mm-hmm. to, just to get back to what you're saying before around scanning the world for the positives, the neuroscience behind it, this is explained to me by a wonderful neuropsych whose name uh first name is people call her Nandy or Nandraker, I think her name is, but many, many, many years ago, many years ago, she said to me, all throughout our life, our brain is trying to create um, shortcuts, I guess, to interpret the world, to respond to things and their neural pathways. And so our brain will go, um, yes, but it is essentially as great as shortcuts for which to make life as easy as possible. And one of those is the way that we interpret information. And most of us have a very strong bias towards a negative. So something negative happens, we'll pay attention to it. It's all a bit of a survival thing going back through caveman years. She says, when you start practicing gratitude every single day or weekly, whatever it is, you start to create a new neural pathway. And that is one that actually yeah. starts scanning the world for the positives. Like it's actually looking out for the good things. So it's things you, we, we did it on the, um, I was very lucky to join the, I was with the Queenslanders for the state of origin um, this year, which I'm guessing as Queenslanders, you guys probably enjoyed a fair bit. I, I thought it was wonderful. Um, they yeah, 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 I was with them on um, the camp before State of Origin 1 and everyone had to do it every day. We had to write down the things that went well for us every single day. And it was really lovely. I was there with them for quite a while. It was like 10 days or whatever. So I was happy. I loved watching. You could see the change come over them as every day they were just sort of scanning the world for the good stuff and taking it in. And um, So it works and it can work very quickly as well. Yeah, another, another example of that is obviously I'm on social media a lot. I get hundreds of DMs every single day. When I'm practicing my gratitude and I get a horrible DM because I'm in that place of gratitude and feeling good, it doesn't really bother me. But if I'm not practicing it, the negative can be so loud and like really, really fuck my day up. Like if a message comes through about my kids or they're questioning something I said or twisting it, it can really, really affect me. But when I'm practicing being grateful and practicing my gratitude journaling, it makes a massive impact. It's just not as loud and I can like let it go a lot quicker. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Equanimity. That's like the word equanimity. It's like it's like when you are able to let go. Base essentially, when you're able to let go of something quickly. Um, I've heard it described as being frictionless before. You know, something happens and it, it just goes. It just washes straight off you. On that social media thing, it's taken me a long time to be okay with that. When you get like some feedback on something, um, I even got like a message the other day. And the subject was negative feedback for you, and I was like. Right, it was right. someone. It was someone who'd come to see me speak and, and wanted to let me know the stuff they didn't like about my talk. And at first, I got real funny about it. And then someone had said to me once, "Just, I mean, have a look at the person. Now look at their profile, and then think to yourself, is this someone you would go to for advice?" And if the answer is no, 
well then why are you going to why are you going to take seriously their feedback if it's not someone 100%. which i thought that's that's really cool I, I do like that so that's been really helpful to me oh my gosh i got given the same advice i don't know who from and i always i always look at their profile photos and like have one the other day and their photo was of peppa pig i was like it's if I'm going to be upset by someone who's got a profile photo as bloody Peppa Big block. <laughs> I think uh, the other way, Ash, though, that when you were always talking because of the uh, the feedback, the amount of feedback you get is, I guess, and on topic of of your expertise, you but always looking to go uh, if they're if they're saying that, then what are they really feeling inside? And they're just hurt, hurt people, hurt people, and and having that empathy and, and that changes things as well from a different point of view, rather than like, I don't need to listen to them because who are they? But um, gee, they're, they're really just hurt and they're, and they're triggered and, and it's not about me. And I, I feel like once you came to that, that position, you really moved through a lot more um, negative feedback than, than yeah. prior, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Day by day, situation by situation though. Some days I'm like, I just don't have time for Peppa Pig. See you later. <laughs> but most of the time I definitely try to be super empathetic and <laughs> compassionate. <laughs> oh. Hoping to get your critique on this because I've got some strong views on journaling, right? I deal a lot with uh, trauma and people in trauma and how it affects the body. And what I try and do always with my journaling is for well, people, because they, they're, if they've been in with psychologists for 10 years, five years or whatever, they're always journaling. But I think what most people miss is I find that journaling, it strengthens our story and it keeps people stuck in the same place and it stops them from growing. So that what you said before, where they, they can't just journal, you can't, you've got to journal and then challenge those things or journal and gratitude journal or what Ash said, journaling from a I feel point of view, not this is my reality and just writing it over and over. And I don't know if you've got any research around that or not, but I just find as soon as someone moves into gratitude journaling and into like what I call EQ journaling, where they're just talking about their feel. And then what you said, where you challenge, you're like, I don't know, where can I control? No, like there's got to be the second part after the journal or otherwise the journal makes things worse in my opinion. And I, I challenge me on that, but I'd like to know where you sit on that. Uh, it's really interesting. I've actually never thought about that before. So the answer I give you now probably won't be overly insightful or helpful, to be honest. But I, I do I do find that really interesting because I feel like I've been very lucky to do all my journaling with a very close guidance of a therapist, like a psychologist that I see. And so it's often guided. The, the, the parts where I explore my story are done with the help of a therapist, with a psychologist who helps me unpack it all. And the journaling I do is, is often as simple as what went well for me today? What am I looking forward to most tomorrow? And what else? Is anything more stressing me out? And how do I want to deal with it? That's kind of the extent of my journaling. So I've never actually done, you know, and I can only speak from personal experience, but I, but I can imagine if you are consistently um, revisiting the same story and writing it down and almost, especially if it's in a, a why was me type, like I'm so, this is so unlucky this happened to me. This is not fair. I, I can imagine that that wouldn't be a healthy practice you know I, I i absolutely agree with that um so well you know how you're talking about that reticular activating system right and we're most like we're we're more predominantly negative if you're not challenging that story you're you're not seeing someone to help you challenge that story then the journaling has to be the same right because it's it's that's how you're filtering the world and it all you're seeing is the same over which i think in my opinion is why that why your gratitude project and the resilience and the 
looking for the good helps to change that that wiring which can help you move through but i just thought it might be an interesting point to bring up for people that are just you know like just i, I don't find you know like someone that i feel worse from journaling or i feel like i'm just mountaining i'm writing and writing and writing and i'm just heavier and heavier i think it's a re- i think it's a really nice point and it's it's definitely something to think about for people who are doing a journal for the first time i, I think it's a really nice point and um yeah some kind of I think that's why I like guided journaling, to be honest, because it, it tries to steer you in that positive direction. Mm. I also think too, like for me, if I get stuck in that, because I've definitely gone down that road before Levi, that's when I do seek help. And I, I talk about it on my social media all the time. And I think there's an awesome movement online where people are saying it is not weak to ask for help. Like there's nothing, you're not broken. There's nothing wrong if you need help. If I get stuck with something and if someone is revisiting that, then that's when they should be reaching out for help you know, with a psychologist or a friend or a coach to get some guidance on where to go next. So, you know, everyone listening, I, I hope that we can keep, you know, spreading that message that it's okay to ask ask for more help and journaling. You know what? Journaling might not be for someone right now in that, that, this season of their life. It, there's so many different tools and techniques that we can use to help us heal and, and go through things. Maybe journaling right now isn't for them. They, may, they might need something different. Totally. Totally. I love that. Um. Next question, and I don't know if you're okay talking about it. It's in your book, but like we obviously we 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 work with a lot of women, and um, I guess most of it is is teaching balance and healthy lifestyles, and and a lot of that comes down to being a lot kinder to ourselves. And we have dealt with a lot of anorexia before, um, and so there's probably a lot of people listening that have gone through it, or uh, know someone going through it, or can you share some some tools or some a story or something around that that may be able to help someone in a in a you know that or give them some insight on where to go? What I would say um, is reading a book. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. So for those of you who haven't read the book, which is probably most of you, my my little sister Georgia, age of fourteen, is diagnosed with anorexia nervosa, and she probably wasn't fully recovered from it until she was twenty eight, and because of my sister's story and, and her journey, I, I now know a lot of people are in similar situations and chat to a lot of people in similar situations. I know this probably won't be overly helpful in what you're hoping for, Levi, but I think my main message would be to the parents of those kids and the siblings of those kids. Um, what I did for a lot of the time is I just, I was pretty angry at my sister maybe angry is not the word, but just resentful because she was just, everyone around the house was so upset for so long. And it just kind of, I didn't understand mental illness back then. And I thought all she has to do is eat food and everyone's happy again. This is so, I cannot believe she's doing this to us. Rather than understand that is she, I mean, it's essentially like saying to someone with a broken leg, why don't you just run? Everyone would be so happy if you just ran now. And you're like, well, I can't, my leg's broken. Understanding it like that is really important from a sibling point of view or a parent point of view. The second thing is there is not a hell of a lot you can do as a parent or a sibling to fix them. I mean, apart from helping them to find the right professional help, there's not a lot you can do. And I think a lot of us, my parents included, would beat themselves up at the time going, I can't, they'd try and do everything they can to help. And it's almost like the harder you try, the worse it gets in a way. Um, So that's the way my parents, I mean, I asked mum once what she would like to do differently. And she said, uh, not blame myself. I was blaming myself the whole way through it, which is incredibly damaging to myself, but then my relationship with, with my daughter. And, and a lot of parents I speak to 
are the same. They sort of blame themselves and they blame themselves that their child's not getting better. Um, and the third thing I'd say, well, there's, I'll say four things. So, and the third thing I'd say is just to validate how hard it is. What you're going through right now as a loved one, it is, I mean, it doesn't get much tougher than that. And I, I, I know exactly what you're going through and it's, it's the darkest time of my life, absolutely, loving someone with an eating disorder, being close on eating disorder. So I, I yeah, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I see you and I hear you and it's, I'm sorry you're going through it. The final thing I'll say to parents and carers, there's a wonderful organisation out there called EDFA, Eating Disorders Families Australia, and they exist for the loved ones of someone with, a, with an eating disorder. And I wish they were around so much when I was a kid because... They have these groups where siblings get together and they share their story of having a brother or sister in an eating disorder. Um, there's a counsellor who sits in the group to help guide the conversation. There's groups for parents as well who can who have a place to turn to uh, with counselling. It's all the support for the families, which I think is um, oh, it's just so important. My message to those of you who are in the groups of eating disorder, it's a complicated one because... You want to get better, but you don't because getting better means that you're putting weight back on or you're looking the way you don't want to look. So it's a very complicated, this is a very complicated message and I get that. But my sister is 39 years old, 40 years, 39 years old now, and she's thriving. She's happy. She's healthy. Um, this isn't the story that defines you forever. This is a chapter in your life. And our life is full of chapters that we have chapter after chapter. And this is a chapter of your life that will in a certain way define you as a person because you will get through this and you'll be, you'll be so strong um, and you'll be just as happy and as resilient as my little sister, Georgia, but um, you will get through this. Mm, that's beautiful. I love that. Thank you for sharing. It was definitely a very, touching part of your story and I supported one of my girlfriends um she's thriving now too with a little bubby but throughout all high school and most of her 20s she suffered from anorexia as well so it's it's so tough on on them on the family on the friends and you do you feel so helpless how did you get through that feeling of feeling so helpless like obviously that you were really frustrated but yeah not well I, I didn't get through it well I, I wouldn't say to people do it I did but I kind of buried my head in the sand and spent most of my time at my girlfriend's house to be honest I just kind of was like I think a pretty typical male yeah a pretty typical male response well that's generalizing but and stereotyping but it okay I won't, I won't generalize just for me it was just spend as much time as you can away from the problem because um which hurt everyone in my family but I just disappeared for for a long time and and um it was just too painful I, I mean I understand why I did. I was 19 years old. I'd just finished school, had a girlfriend for the first time in my life. My choice is being at home where it was incredibly dark and incredibly upsetting or go to a girlfriend's house. <laughs> um, yeah. it, it wasn't much of a, you know, I even, yeah. So I, I understand and forgive myself for doing it, but um, I wouldn't recommend people what I did, which is completely bury my head in the sand. Um, I, I think spend as much time as you can listening to the person talk about what they're going through. It can be a really helpful thing, but again, it might be something that I want to talk about. So I'd, I'd say that knowing that that it might be a useless bit of information or, or, or advice. I've, I learned too. Uh, she's obviously, she's really, she's recovered now. And she said that one thing that really helped her with me was that I didn't try to fix her. I didn't just tell her to eat, tell her to do this. There was no fixing. It was just like holding her. 
like holding her. And when she came to me, it was like, oh, I, you know, I want to eat but something really low calorie. It's really healthy. I'm like, cool, I can help you with that. But there was never, there was never telling her what to do. Whereas say her parents were just like, just eat, you've got to eat this and shoving it down her throat and forcing her to do it. And then, you know, that would then start with bulimic. She'd go and throw it up. It was just this vicious cycle. She felt so suffocated at home and out of control with everything that like food was the one thing she could control. But with me, she felt this like safe, like, oh, I can breathe again. Can you show me how to make a smoothie? Like it was just really holding space for her in that time. I mean, that's much better than my answer. So definitely keep that in the edit. <laughs> it's so hard though. It's not something you learn how to deal with, you know. It, it's And every case is so different and far out. I, yeah, being a 19-year-old boy, I don't know many 19-year-old boys that would be able to manage that and handle that very well. It's just, it is just really, really tough. So thank you for being so open and vulnerable. And if Georgia ever listens to this, thank you for her being so honest and sharing her story because it definitely is going to make a massive impact and hopefully inspire a lot of other boys and girls and adults going through similar to what she's been through. So it's really inspiring. Oh, thank you. On, the, on that, not just anorexia, but like just moving on from a parent or a loved one, um, because what you just spoke like was really touching. Like the thing that I've seen a lot of people struggle with is wanting, like really almost demanding the person, you know, like I need you to talk like, and rather than how to, what does the research say? What does your project say around how to, like, I guess what Ashley said, she just sat there and, and didn't need her to support. But, you know, when you're a friend, it's a little bit easier than as a mum or a dad or a, a, a brother going, yeah. just talk. Like, I need to know what, how, do, how, do, how, do the, how do they do that? With What's, what's the research say with that? Um, I, well, I do know what the research says around what is the most effective form of listening, if, if you can get them to talk. And I, so my... So I'll answer this with a bit of non-evidence-based stuff, just my experiences and then some evidence-based stuff. So getting them to talk is a really, really difficult thing because when you're when you're really in it, like depression or anxiety, talking is is the last thing you want to do, especially about what you're going through. It's just but you don't want to be around people. You just it's the last thing you want to do. And so I think I, I think these are not evidence-based. If you can get that person doing something they love with you. So if that person likes cycling or if they like um, going for breakfast for coffee or if they like listening to music or whatever it is, if you can keep at them, schedule schedule with them a time you're going to catch up and do what they love doing and not every time. You don't want them to feel like every single time you're going to catch up with them, you're going to go, how are you? Okay, what can I do to help? I'm here for you. That's... Because then they're going to start saying no. But if you schedule three catch-ups with them where they're doing what they love doing, let's start cycling. We'll cycle, we'll grab a coffee afterwards. The first two times, just normal. And then the third time, you know, you can say, don't say, how are you going? Are you okay? How can I help? I think looking for little ends. So if the, work, if, if the issues stem from a relation, well, let's say the issues mainly come from work. They're trapped in a really toxic working environment whatever. You can just say a broad question like how things at work and then like listen and don't, don't have your answer loaded ready to go listen to what they say because they might say oh yeah no it's it's yeah it's fine and then you can say something like oh that didn't sound very convincing what's going on as opposed to be honest with me tell me like is there something you should want to talk about you can just listen to the way they say it or they might say i'm really struggling in which case you say tell me what's going on and I think the most important thing to do 
and we sort of mentioned this before actually, but the most important thing to do, I think, is to, well, first thing, this, so this is the research part. Um, and doctor, a guy called Dr. Billy Garvey, who's actually a pediatrician, talked talk me through this. He said, the first thing you do is you listen non-judgmentally, which basically means you don't talk, you just listen and you give really good body language and you nod and you make the appropriate faces. So that's the first bit. The second thing is, most important step, I think, is, is according to Billy, Dr. Billy Garvey, is you validate the way they feel. You just validate them. So again, you're not trying to fix it. You just say, oh, I can, I totally understand why you feel like that. That makes so much sense to me. I've, I've been in a situation like that before and I felt the exact same way. So you just you make them yeah. feel like what they're feeling is totally normal and it's totally okay. If you, And then if, only if you feel like they're really asking for it, you try and give advice. But that's only if, I reckon 25% of the time you're giving advice. Um, you might be able to say, well, you can say, well, well, gosh, what can we do with this? And you let them talk, let them come up with it. Because I don't, they're not really, they're not really coming for us to fix it. It's, it's, they just need a space to get it out of their head, like we were saying before. So validate the hell out of them. Just give it like, and then let them know that you're always here in any way they need. And then if you think, you know, I reckon I've got some advice that will actually help then you can sort of talk them through a situation in your life where you've been in a similar situation. This has helped, but that's the only time you can give advice. If you've been in a similar situation, don't say, Oh, you should do this. Have you tried doing this? It's not, it's not because in the end of that, that won't work. They're not going to go, Oh, this person never been through this before. I'll do what they're telling me to do. Who's not, it's my friend, but yeah. they're not a professional. I've been through this. This is what helped me. Maybe you could go with that, but otherwise you're validating their experience. Oh, isn't validation just so important? I feel like I've only really learned and practiced this the last couple of years. Everyone just wants to be seen and heard at the end of the day. And one cool thing that I learned off one of my best friends, I believe she's one of my soulmates, um, with our friendship now, when we're going through something, we're having events, she'll say to me, what do you need from me right now? Do you need support, a soundboard, advice, my perspective, a different experience I've been through? And she gives me all these options. And I'm like, oh, they're like, I'm at a restaurant. I've got this menu to choose from. I'm like, actually, I just need to have a big bitch. I just need to get it off my chest or all right, I really need some advice because I actually feel so stuck. Like, have you been through something similar? And just having those options, I think is really nice because sometimes I used to be a fixer. If someone come to me upset, I would come in and be the warrior and want to fix everything. And obviously I've done a lot of unpacking as to why I was like that. But a lot of time it would just make people pull away because it's like one, they feel like they're broken all the time or two, they just might've wanted to get out of their body. And here you are giving all these solutions that might not feel good for them. So that's a really nice sort of... Isn't it just a great... That's a fantastic question. What can I do for you right now? What do you need from me right now? Mm. It's an open question. They've got the options and the space to like go, shit, what do I... And they might have even thought about it themselves. Like, what do I actually need right now? You know? I think it's a really cool tool. That was a really powerful response. Thank you. Um... We're nearly out of time, but um, I would love to ask another question. If there is one, I mean, maybe you've just answered it. There's one bit of advice that you could give on how we can help and protect our, our kids' mental health. What would it be? Obviously, validation. No, I, I, it's a very simple one for me. It's to get them to understand from a very young age that they are enough as they are. Like they don't need oh, to win anything. They don't need to be the best anything. They don't need to look a certain way. And that's a trap I'm falling into. My daughter right now, she'll come out and say, would you like my dress? And I go, oh, you look so beautiful. And the other day, the nanny came over. She goes, oh, I want to I show the nanny how beautiful I am today. I'm like, oh, shit, this is exactly what I'm talking about. I, I don't, 
you don't need to wear a certain dress to be loved. You know, when I put her to bed right now, I'm saying to her, I'll put her to bed and I'll say, Elsie, every single night I say, Elsie, I love you because you are Elsie, my daughter. That That's why I love you. Um, and she doesn't get it at the moment. She has no idea what I'm talking about. She finds it. In fact, she calls my auntie, uh, she calls Georgia, my sister, auntie, daughter. She can't say Georgia, she says daughter. And I said, I love you because you're Elsie, you're my daughter. And she goes, I'm not auntie Georgia. I'm not auntie daughter. I go, no, it doesn't matter. I love you because you're Elsie. That's it. I love you for who you are. So um, they don't need to be good at sport. They don't need to be the best in their class. They don't need to look and see. they are enough as they are because that's the more I look into it, that's an issue we're all having as adults is we're desperately trying to prove ourselves and, and be enough because there's a certain part of our life where we feel like we're just not enough. And I think any way that you can get your your kids to genuinely like from the heart feel like they're enough as they are it's it is that to me is the most important thing we can do and isn't that so much work that we have to do on ourselves too because i feel like if we don't feel enough as an adult we can like on that to our kids even like with sport or school or anything if we thought that we needed to be xyz to be loved then we'd push that on our kids because that's how we thought we got love and if you're not conscious and aware of that you can so easily create those stories in their heads so i love that you brought that point up Totally, totally. Yeah, no, it's um, yeah. it's a really important one, and probably a nice, you know, I've had to summarise everything I'm thinking about about parenting. That's kind of the point I'd come to. So it's a great last question. As a as a conscious dad, that question that you just added, where you, you know, you are enough as you are, and you're also because I'm doing it exactly the same as what you're doing, and I've got some other mates that are doing the same. We notice our saying, self saying, you look so beautiful, darling, or you're so smart or whatever. And then part of our brain goes, oh shit, am I, am I like, and, and I just noticed you did the same um, in regards to with the beautiful thing. And like, you should be able to give lots of compliments, right? But you don't want to do it over here. So now that I know that you're doing the same thing as me and my mates, what do you, what, how do you balance that out? Or is it just the nightly thing to reinforcing? Like, how do you, how do you manage it? Cause you, I can see you going through it too. Yeah, well, I ended up, and my wife laughed a lot this morning, but I said, Elsie came down. I was, we're trying to think, encourage her for characteristics that we think will be really helpful for her. So there's this book that we've got at home, and it's called Girls Are Pretty, dot, dot, dot. That's a heading, Girls Are Pretty, dot, dot, dot. And you open the page, and it says, Girls Are Pretty Bold. Girls Are Pretty Clever. Girls Are Pretty um, uh, how can I, uh, Creative. So we're trying to think of qualities that we think would be really helpful to us. So she came downstairs and she goes, Daddy, look at my dress. And I said, oh, you're so bold, <laughs> which doesn't make sense at all. <laughs> and I was like, I'm so trying bold. to give her helpful compliments. I don't know. <laughs> That's so funny. We've got the we've got the same book, maybe, but for boys, it's like boy, oh, it's boys can be creative. Boys can be. Oh, boys I love that. That's adventurous. Really, that's really good. Yeah, really good. really good. I try and use that language more, but it is. It's so hard. Or Taj does really well at school. I'm like, oh, you're you're so smart. You're so clever. I'm like, oh, yeah, what else do I say? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's we're all trying our best, basically. Yeah, a hundred percent. Oh, thank you so much for this conversation. I feel like we could keep talking to you for hours, but I'm sure you have many other things to do today. <laughs> oh, uh, no, pleasure. Thanks Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's, I've loved these conversations. You're both doing such incredible work. So it's, it, um, I've thoroughly enjoyed today. So thank you so much. Thank you. And for anyone listening, where can they find you? What's the best way to connect with you and your work? Or if they want to get a school involved or help their kids more, what's, what, where can they go? 
I think just go to resiliencebroject.com.au um, and all our school programs and workplace programs and books and journals and everything are on there. We, we've tried to sort of create a resource to meet, to try and meet everyone's needs. So um, whether they're time poor, whether they're the kind of person who doesn't usually like this stuff or uh, whether they love books or podcasts or apps or whatever it is, we've tried to create a, a product for everyone that they might might help them in their journey. So resiliencebroject.com.au. And you've definitely done a great job with that. The information and the way you talk about things and your storytelling, it's very easy to digest and take on the information. So, yeah, even if you are someone who's never practiced practice gratitude or journaling or anything, I feel like this is an awesome place to start with you. So thank you for all of your work and we'll list all of your details in the show notes below and um, hopefully we'll catch up with you another time. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It means a lot. Thank you. Thanks so much. And uh, if anyone on here enjoyed that conversation, loved what we do, uh, got something from Hugh or Ashley or myself, make sure you follow the podcast, share it to all your friends and uh, get the message out there.